As summer is winding down and schools around the country are set to reopen in the next couple of weeks, school districts are facing a crisis. They don't have enough teachers. According to education reporter Hannah Natanson, some districts are short hundreds or even thousands of educators. There's some rural districts in Texas that are actually switching to a four-day school week um, in an effort to compensate for lack of staff. In Arizona, they're hiring college students to teach K-12. And Florida passed a law that would allow military veterans to teach in the state without certification. They just to have to have been in military service for some number of years and have maintained a 2.5 GPA over, I believe, 60 course credits. If you talk to teachers, they'll tell you that these teacher shortages are not new. About four years ago is when we started to, you know, see that there were teacher vacancies starting to happen. And then COVID happened and exposed, just exposed everything. Hannah has been talking with teachers and administrators about why this country has run out of people who are willing to teach right now and what this will mean for kids. So what we're effectively seeing is that at a moment where American students really need good schooling because they're still struggling to recover from pandemic-induced gaps in social and emotional and, you know, fundamentally academic learning that they would have gotten normally in a normal year. We have the fewest teachers available that we've seen in a long while. And the consequences for students are going to be that they're not going to catch up. And in some cases, they're going to slip further behind. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 16th. Today, what's behind the teacher shortage? Plus, later in the show, what we can learn from the people who have still never gotten COVID. So why is this happening? Why are we seeing such an acute shortage of teachers? So it's hard to say because teacher resignations are intensely personal. They're going to vary case to case. But the people who watch this field, experts and analysts, say that it's a combination of things that are all sort of hitting in this kind of perfect storm. There's this pandemic-induced teacher exhaustion where people have been forced to pivot their styles of teaching so many times and are just weary. There's really low pay, which has been a chronic issue for decades. And there's also this increasing sense that politicians and parents and sometimes people in their own school system don't respect teachers. And that's because there's this ongoing educational culture war in which you've seen districts and states pass policies and laws that limit what teachers can say about U.S. history, race, racism, gender, sexual orientation, and sort of a broader range of LGBTQ issues. And these laws have all popped up in the past two, two-ish years. Um, and so you've got teachers who just feel horribly disrespected. I'm curious to hear more about those conversations. What are the kinds of things that teachers are saying about their rationale for quitting? So, for example, I spent some time with a woman in Florida who was a teacher there and loved her job, but that person is married to a woman. And there was a a law that came out in Florida very recently, took effect over the summer, that limits instruction on LGBTQ issues. And this woman just felt that 
it had become so fraught for her. Like if, if a student asks, you know, how's your family? And she says, my wife is doing well. Does that count as instruction on LGBTQ issues? Could mm-hmm. she get a parent coming to the classroom and, and saying, oh my gosh, you broke the rules. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't know. And so with that level of uncertainty coupled with honestly things about the teaching profession that had always been trouble spots, lack of pay, long hours, really hard work, this woman decided to quit. I spoke to Leslie Houston, who is a special education teacher in Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia. She's also president of a teacher's group, the Fairfax Education Association. And she said that she has never before ever seen so many teachers leaving this the job because they feel just a total lack of respect. I look back and I think now, back then, you know, we were never paid what we were worth. And then over the last couple of years, just such disrespect and disdain for for teachers, I think, is causing this teacher shortage. You had parents get up in front of school boards nationwide and say mean, hateful, and disparaging things about teachers. You know, I, I, there were some times that I would drive up to school board meetings and I, I wouldn't go in because I didn't want to subject myself to that. You know, listening to that, it really strikes me that Leslie says that she was never paid what she was worth, that the teachers have never been paid what they were, were worth. And I find it really interesting that even though that has been the case for such a long time, that this country has undervalued teachers, at least financially, that something has changed in these last couple of years, that that plus this feeling of disrespect or this feeling of being at the center of a lot of different conflicts that are happening in society, that that has really put things over the edge. I think... You can't underestimate the importance that teachers attach to their jobs and their ability to reach children. And that's why they get into this, right? None of them were doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. They got into this because they believed in trying to touch young people's lives. And I do remember sort of in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was forced to switch online and everyone was scrambling. And there was this little sort of honeymoon grace period where the same way that we were idolizing healthcare workers. We had this burst of appreciation for teachers and parents Mm. sharing things about, my God, I've had to teach my child at home today, or I've had to, you know, take care of my child at home this entire week. Teachers are are angels, and and they could also see the teachers working so hard to reach the students virtually. And I remember talking to teachers then, and even though it was so hard to reach kids, and it was so uncertain, and everyone was scared, and their jobs had just become exponentially more difficult, they were working these horrible hours, and again, still for bad pay, they were kind of exultant. They felt that they were fulfilling a purpose, and they, they felt that society appreciated them. And we've just come totally to the opposite position. And that's what I hear when I talk to teachers is just they feel like parents don't trust them. Society doesn't trust them. People are vilifying them, assuming bad intentions, some desire to indoctrinate children. When teachers who went into this job, they went into this to educate. And they just feel that not only is there disrespect, but there's these new laws that make it impossible for them to do their jobs as people scream at them for trying to do their jobs. And they've just had it. 
So, Hannah, I think that the examples that you're describing here speak to how widespread these feelings are of, of feeling disrespected among teachers. But but I, I do wonder, like, why are we seeing so many more of these conflicts that have started to drive teachers out of the classroom, make them feel like they don't have the latitude to make decisions and that they don't want to be teachers anymore? One thing that I've noticed and heard a lot in my reporting since the pandemic is that during the pandemic, parents suddenly gained a lot more visibility into classrooms than they'd ever had before at genuinely any other point in American education because classes were online and their kids were sitting right there and the parents could see literally over their kids' shoulders and see what the teacher was teaching about and what they were talking about. And I think that's where some of this came from. So then what position does that leave these school districts in? What happens to the districts that are still far short of the number of teachers that they need to be able to start the school year? So they're scrambling. They're just scrambling all across the country. And so in some lucky cases, they've managed to recruit enough qualified substitute teachers. Often the primary way they've managed to do that is by promising more pay than they used to offer. But for districts that don't have enough subs to sort of stretch to cover those gaps, they're doing things like pulling in central office administrators who maybe used to be teachers or in worst cases were never teachers or they're combining classes in gymnasiums or auditoriums or they're doubling up classes or it's just it's kind of a do what you can mess honestly. You know Hannah in some ways it seems like this challenge that school districts are facing is a really complicated one. Because as you said, there are so many cultural and societal factors that are playing into this and making teachers feel unwanted or unrespected. And that that, I can imagine, is a harder thing to turn around. But you also mentioned that for some of these school districts, they're just paying teachers more. And for a career that has been historically underpaid, I mean, in some ways, that's a very easy solution. Like, maybe we should just start paying teachers more and that this is the moment where we really realize that this job has value and it should be paid accordingly. You know, I think in places where they're genuinely upping the pay rate with sustainable funds of money and they're figuring out a way to do that, that's great. I think the problem is in some places they're using sort of one-time funds, so American Rescue Plan funds or, you know, earlier in COVID it was one-time COVID-style funds to accomplish these raises. And so the problem is those districts where it's not being done in a sustainable way, we're just going to wind up back with the same problem. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to me that we've hit a broader societal point where we've decided to suddenly genuinely boost what we invest in the school system. Mm -hmm. I think school districts are sort of still scrambling to find ways around a general shortage of money. Hmm. And is there anything about that the federal government or the, the, the Department of Education is getting involved in or finding a way to try to help fix this problem if it is so widespread and we're seeing it in states around the country? Not that I'm aware of yet. Well, why not? Why isn't this on their radar if we've spent so much of the past almost three years talking about all the ways that we're trying to support kids during this unprecedented, challenging time of education? Sometimes I, I sort of envision it like a whack-a-mole game. I think there's so many problems popping up that it's hard to keep track of which one rises to the top. And I should say that I'm not aware of any national level initiatives to 
supplement staff, but I will say at the state level, there have been some steps, but to my knowledge, most of those steps have involved decreasing the qualifications required to teach in schools. So in Hmm. Florida, there is a movement to allow military veterans who do not have teaching backgrounds to enter classrooms. Arizona Hmm. is allowing college students to come in and instruct children. So I should be clear that there's some movement to try to solve the staffing gap because people have started to notice, oh my gosh, the start of school is here. We don't have enough teachers. But right now, the form it's taking is, okay, we don't have enough teachers. Let's reduce requirements to get someone into the classroom, which, you know, teachers don't love as a solution. What do you make of those solutions? I mean, are those examples of creative problem solving for a very acute, almost emergency problem? Or do you think that there are other problems kind of embedded in that solution when you have teachers who don't have that kind of experience or training in classrooms? I mean, I think baseline, it is good that when school starts and students file into the classroom, it is better to have an adult there than not to have anyone at all. But There are some flaws that are effectively built into those solutions. And when I was speaking to the head of the Florida Education Association, uh, Andrew Sparr, he made a really good point. He was noting that everyone is grateful to military veterans for their service. But I believe his exact words were something like, just because you were in the military doesn't mean you're a great teacher. So I think the trade-off there is you have bodies in classrooms, which is good. But they're not people who've been trained to be teachers. And Mm -hmm. again, we're at a particularly vulnerable moment for our students where they are not where they would have been in non-pandemic times. So I think we just need to ask ourselves sort of as a country at this point, what, what should we be doing to serve our students? And does that involve lowering standards to get bodies into classrooms to be teachers? Or does that somehow involve maybe a more sustainable or lasting solution that doesn't require lowering our standards of who should count as a teacher? Well, what does that look like then, that more sustainable, lasting solution? Like, what would it take for this shortage to get significantly better? I don't have the magic answer. I think when I talk to teachers and education advocates and experts, obviously pay. Pay would be huge. Cost of living adjustments would also be very welcome in addition to just a general increase in pay. But I do also think some of the intangibles matter a lot too. And so anecdotally, based on my reporting throughout the pandemic and now, if teachers are going to stay, we need to make them feel like they're wanted and that we believe that what they're doing is valuable. And that is going to require something more of a culture shift at this particular moment, where we are at in terms of how people talk about and view the teaching profession. And this is something that I heard from Leslie Houston. We're the, we're the only profession that uh, touch every profession, yet we're not considered the experts in our field. Doctors are considered the experts in their field. Pilots are considered the experts in their field. So... Start with respecting and protecting your teachers. Pay them what they are worth and treat us like the experts we are. That's a start. When I've talked to teachers, they've said, 
we do welcome parent involvement with their children. We love to see that parents are engaged with their kids. That's so much better than the alternative. What I hear frustration over is they don't feel like there's a real desire to collaborate or to accept explanations for how things are taught or to understand that there's a difference between being the parent of a child with all the rights that a parent should have over that child and being a teacher who's gone to school to be a teacher and studied how to be a teacher. And there is a difference. And so I think if there'd be some way to shift these conversations over parents' roles in the school and teachers' appropriate roles in the school to something more closely resembling a collaboration than a confrontation, I think that would also go a long way right now towards keeping some teachers in the profession. Hannah, thank you so much for explaining all of this. Thank you for having me. After the break, a story about a club that is getting more and more exclusive by the day, the COVID-free club. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing. I put a call out on Twitter. This is something we do as reporters sometimes. When we are looking for subjects to be interviewed for a story, we might put a call out on some kind of social media network. This is reporter Ellen McCarthy, and she's been reporting on quote-unquote super dodgers. A COVID super dodger is someone who, to their knowledge, has not had COVID in the last two and a half years. When Ellen put this call out for stories, the response was immediate. Can I just tell you that I was so inundated with responses? I mean, these super dodgers are dying to talk about their super dodger status. I have never in my, you know, 20 plus years of journalism have gotten a response like that. You know who else replied? Stephen King, like the author Stephen King. He replied to my tweet and he said, me, (laughs) he's a super dodger. I have to confess here, and I want to knock on wood as I say this, I am a super dodger. Somehow, throughout this whole pandemic, through luck or whatever is going on with my immune system, I have avoided COVID through Delta and Omicron and BA2 and 4 and 5 and whatever insane variant we're on. And even though this, like, no COVID club is getting smaller every day, I am not alone. I couldn't keep up with the, the amount of messages. At my inbox, every time I refreshed it, there were five new messages from people being like, me, talk to me, interview me. I don't have it. Half of them ended their email the same way. Knock on wood, knock on wood, knock on wood. Everybody else ended their email saying, but I probably just jinxed it by emailing you. I wanted to hear from Ellen about who these super dodgers are and what, if anything, we can learn from them. I spoke with a young man named Lucas Rivas. He is a 27-year-old who works in an urgent care clinic in Littleton, Colorado. 
You know, I was kind of in between. I had bouts of thinking like, wow, if I haven't gotten it yet, maybe I can't or won't. It's hard because I'm faced with it every day at work. Kathy Moss, who is a a 63-year-old pediatric nurse uh, from Southfield, Michigan. None of us really understands how this works because we've all been exposed. Tony Freeman, who is a 63-year-old actor, and he's been part of the cast of Lion King for more than 20 years since it debuted on Broadway. I feel like part of my job as a standby is to make sure the show can go on. And therefore, I've made every effort to stay as healthy as I can. I also talked to a really funny guy named Luke Martin, who is a film producer in Brooklyn, uh, but he also does some comedy. And and he hadn't had COVID. And he uh, really jokingly uh, would tell his friends that he thinks that the reason he didn't get COVID was that he um, had been doing strikeouts since the beginning of the pandemic. A strikeout is when you take a hit of weed, you hold it in, and while it's still in your lungs, you rip a shot, chug a beer before exhaling. I usually can do this in like between like three and six seconds from inhale to exhale. People had various theories about why they hadn't had COVID yet. And a lot of people didn't have theories. They just were sort of really curious about it. But some people did have theories. (laughs) I hate to admit it, but yeah, I was definitely thinking for a minute there that maybe I was was safe. I couldn't get it. I don't want it. I just don't want this disease. I also think I must have superhuman immunity or something. I don't know what it was, but I, I really liked the idea that doing strikeouts was keeping me from contracting the virus. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention put out a report um, saying that 60% of Americans had had COVID at some point at the end of February before these extremely contagious BA4 and BA5 variants even, even came to the U.S. So we know that that number is much higher now. And the other thing is we all know that some of these people may actually have had COVID and just didn't have any symptoms. They were the lucky asymptomatic people who wouldn't have even known it and wouldn't have even bothered to test themselves. I spoke to several epidemiologists for this story, and none of them have seen any conclusive evidence that there is superhuman immunity, that there are people who are innately immune to COVID. There is no evidence that that is a thing, But there is research going on. There is curiosity about it. I had been grappling with this for a while, and internally I was kind of ready to do something this weekend, you know. Lucas Rivas went out over Fourth of July, and he had a drink, and he had another drink, and he he sang karaoke with one woman, and then he ended up um, kissing another woman that he had never met before, and, you know, like having a really fun night out. And um, sure enough... A couple days later, he tested positive. I feel kind of stupid. I feel like I was reckless. I feel like I signed up for it in my actions that I took. So it does feel like I I wasted two years of of heavy precautions, of doing everything I could. I I almost feel like I was wasted at this point. Luke Martin, who had his (laughs) amazing theory about his strikeouts, and he was so proud, and he was very boastful to all of his friends about not having covid then, of course, you know, by the time I talked to him, he was COVID positive and he was in quarantine. 
I couldn't believe it. And I was really disappointed because I had been bragging for over a year that I was basically better than all my friends for not having it. Even two and a half years in, there's just so much that we don't know, and it's continuing to evolve and change, and we, we still don't know where we stand with this pandemic. When this story was assigned, my editor had not had COVID. By the time I filed the story, he was not available to edit it because he had COVID. <laughs> so it sat for a couple days until he was feeling a little bit better. All I know is I stopped doing strikeouts and almost immediately was infected with COVID. And you can draw your own conclusions. Ellen McCarthy is a reporter for The Post. Natalie Bettendorf produced this story. If you are a super dodger, we want to hear from you. Write us an email at postreports at washpost.com and tell us your amazing story of dodging the virus. But if you do, a warning. So that part about me being a super dodger, having this miraculous immune system, we actually recorded that last Thursday. And then Friday morning, I woke up with a sore throat and, of course, tested positive for COVID. Not only that, but it turns out that I also gave COVID to Alahe, our guest host, after she talked about how she had never gotten COVID. I'm feeling fine at this point. Alahe is recovering. But that is all to say that if you run around bragging about the fact that you're a super dodger, you will definitely jinx it and you will definitely get COVID. So you've been warned. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.